We are starting Luke chapter 13 this morning. If you will, grab your Bibles uh, and turn over there. Grab a device and tap over there if that's how you do it. Uh, Remember, Jesus in in chapter 12 has been talking to us a great deal about his return, about death, about future judgment and and such. Uh, Some of them have been hard things to hear, but also encouraging things to hear as the Lord means it for our good. Uh, today, that theme continues as, as Jesus is responding to these crowds who are asking him some questions about these tragedies that have occurred in their community, and their culture. Uh, and he also is going to then tell us a parable. We're not going to read the parable at the start. We'll read it when we get to it, so it's fresh in your mind. Uh, but Luke chapter 13, if you've got your Bibles there, let's, let's read, beginning in verse 1. There were some present... At that very time, he told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, the theme of this passage is quite clear. Repent or perish. But Lord, maybe we've heard those words from the lips of graceless men shouting in anger. Maybe we've heard them explained as a heartless threat from a distant and angry God. However, we've heard them before, Lord. Open our hearts this morning to hear them from the lips of our Lord, who is holy and just, but also merciful and patient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there are conversations that that Jesus has with people that aren't recorded in the scriptures. You you pick up on them, and this is one of those instances where you you pick up that something has been going on that's not recorded, and we just hear this part of it. And so at some point in in Jesus' public discourse, talking with the crowds, some people told Jesus about two terrible events that happened within their wider culture. We, We don't know the actual details, and we don't know the details because this is the only place in Scripture they're mentioned. It's the only place in any of the historical writings that they're mentioned. And so here's what we think we know. Uh, I'll give you that as far as we can put it together from these statements. Uh, the Galileans mentioned here, first of all, they're a group of Jews. I know sometimes we forget that. They're like the crowd that he's speaking to, but they're from a different region than they're from. It's, it's similar to the way we say Californians or New Yorkers or Midwesterners or something of that nature. Now, Jesus himself is a Galilean. That is the category he would, he would be in because of the region he's from. So anyway, presumably the Galileans were in Jerusalem making sacrifices in the temple, as all the Jews would go to do. And Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor in this era, at this time, over this region of Judea, basically the guy in charge, uh, has his soldiers go in and murder these Galileans while they're in the act of worshiping, while they're in the act of actually making sacrifices to the Lord. And then to make things even worse, he takes their blood and mixes it with the sacrifices just to make... Well, to do a horrible, horrible act of evil there. I think to, to try to make any sense to us, because we don't, we don't do the sacrifices today, since, since Christ is the once-for-all last sacrifice, um, but to make this make sense to us, it'd be like our government sending soldiers in here this morning 
during the Lord's Supper and after killing us, mixing our blood with the communion wine. Not just one heinous, horrible event, but to go even further, right? To, to, make a, to do an even worse evil thing. Uh, the second tragic story that Jesus is making reference here is that the people tell him about this Tower of Siloam, right? It's a, it's a name you might recognize. It's from the southeast corner of, of Jerusalem. It's just a region of, of Jerusalem that he's referring to. Uh, and the reason you might recognize it is Jesus, in the, in the book of John, there's a, a story where there's a blind man that Jesus heals. We'll actually hear that story a little later. Um, and so anyway, this tower, most likely made of stone, tumbles down on people. And we even know the death toll there, right? 18 people are killed. It's a, it's a current event for them. We, we, we don't know the details, but we know this is what people are talking about. Uh, people all over Judea are, are talking about it, right? They even know the death toll. And, and, and when we read this, uh, you know, particularly that second one, the tower one, I, I can't help but think back to when Laura and I were students at Texas A&M, and a, a similar tragedy actually occurred, and we had to live through that. Um, if you're not familiar with, with the school at all, uh, 90 years ago, or for 90 years, students were building a bonfire. There's this massive bonfire, and the whole point of it was the day before we played against TU, uh, a school in Austin, we'd light it up, and people would gather around it for a pep rally kind of thing. Uh, and not just a few people. We're talking 12,000 people would gather around this thing. It, it took weeks to build. It was all done by volunteers. The stack consisted of about 5,000 logs, like huge logs. It was nearly six stories tall. And to put that in perspective, uh, right next door where Harry's is, uh, Harry's Restaurant, if you go out there today and look at it, that's six stories tall. It's just slightly shorter than that one over there. Anyway, at 2.42 a.m. on November 18, 1999, while students were building this structure, something within it snapped, and the whole thing, these six floors worth of logs, tumbled down upon uh, the students who were up working on this. Uh, getting to people became a, a slow process. There was this fear that if any time you move a log, the rest of them are going to shift and, and cause trouble. So this whole thing played out over many days as we sought to untrap the, the, the people. In the end, 12 students died. Many more were injured. As the, and as the hours and the days passed, as we, we prayed for these people, as we prayed with our uh, fellow Aggies at the time, and, and, and people began to ask the question, right? The question that accommodates every single tragedy we've seen in the history of the world, it seems like. The question of why? Why would God allow this to happen to these people? That's the question that was being widely asked by people. And, and, and again, that's the question we hear always, right? Remember after 9-11... Some of you are old enough to remember actually going through that. And, and, and you remember, why? Why did this happen? But, you know, even recently you, you hear people asking the question regarding Kobe and the helicopter accident. And that there were children on board and these others. You know, why? Why, why did the shooting in Milwaukee happen last week? Or in schools or in churches as we see over and over? Why, why the tsunami some years ago? Why, why are some people catching the coronavirus right now? Why is God allowing this to happen? Now, one of the things I find intriguing here is that it, today in our culture, we ask that question, why, all the time, right? But, but most of us are asking that question, why, you know, why Kobe and his daughter, why the shootings in Milwaukee? And, and the assumption is, these are innocent people, they don't deserve this, why in the world is this happening to In Jesus' time, it's the exact opposite, if you see there. That's, you know, the, the question of why, it's, it, it's assuming these must be terrible sinners, for such a tragic event to happen to them. And that's what's behind the, the rhetorical questions that our Lord is asking there, right? In verse 2 with, with the Galileans, do you, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than the other Galileans 
because they suffer this way? And then in verse 4, when he talks about the, the tower victims, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? And Jesus is asking this question because he knows exactly what these people think. That's what they think. It's kind of like in the, the book of Job when his crummy friends say to him after he suffers, you know, basically, only guilty people suffer like you, Job, so you must be guilty. What in the world have you done, Job? And Job's saying, I haven't. And Job's right. That's the, the way we tend to think. Or like in John 9, 1 through 3, when Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, they pass this blind man. And his disciples ask this question that's probably been on their minds since they were young children. They ask him, you know, who, who sinned? This man or this man's parents? In other words, why is he blind? What is, whose sin is responsible for this man being blind? And you see, when we see tragic stories in the news, we, we like to have some reason why it happened to them and, and, and not us, right? And, and, and the reason is that really it comforts us on some level because if we can say why it happened to these people, at the same time, we can also kind of explain why it's not going to happen to me. Because I'm not like them doing the things they're doing, something along those lines. That's, that's what they're doing here. You know, they're, they're thinking to themselves, maybe the Galileans and the tower victims died in this horrible way because they are particularly evil sinners. Maybe this is God's judgment on them. And with that, at the same moment, they can explain, you know, that's why this won't happen to me. I don't have to fear those things happen to me because I'm not a bad sinner like them. That's their assumption if you really get down to it. And are they right? Did these people die horrendous deaths because of their wickedness? Well, we know that sometimes men and women do suffer as natural consequences, uh, results based on their terrible decisions. For instance, if, um, you, you go drunk driving and you get an accident, right? That's a natural consequence of that. But uh, it is absolutely not true to say that all suffering is the result of someone's particular sin. It's not. That's why in each instance here, Jesus says, no, no, right? Do you suppose this? No, you're wrong. That's why these people, uh, that's not why these people die. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. That's, that's why regarding the blind man in, in John 9 that we just read about, Jesus answered his disciples saying, it, it was not that this man had sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that's sometimes the reason for suffering, that the works of God might be displayed. It's not always, though. There, there's many reasons for suffering. And, and tragedy, when tragedy occurs, uh, or rather when tragedy occurs, but, but, but you and I don't know the reason. And that's important. We don't know the reason. Which is why we should never make moral judgments based upon someone's suffering. I remember years ago hearing, hearing this phrase, something along these lines, of uh, hearing about someone who had AIDS. And the response from someone I knew was, he, he probably deserves it. Don't ever, ever say things like that. Don't think things like that. Fight that, you know. And, and did you notice that Jesus never corrects them for saying that God's responsible for these events? It's weird to us, some of us, right? These people have a good sense of the sovereignty of God here, and yet they're completely wrong regarding why these tragedies occurred to these people. Jesus doesn't tell the crowds why these tragedies occurred either. Instead, he just objects to their thinking that somehow they were safe because they were more holy or, uh, than the Galileans or because they're more righteous than, than, the, than the people of Siloam. 
You see, Jesus wants them to feel unsafe because they are unsafe where they are now. In both instances, he replies word for word the exact same way. Jesus says, I tell you, but unless you repent and will be, uh, uh, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, you're, you're not righteous people. You're, you're so focused on the sin of these other people that, that you're missing what you need to see. And that's that you are sinners. And if you don't repent of your sin, you will perish. Now, perish does mean death, right? That's the way we, we tend to think of it. But in the scriptures, to, to perish also has a wider, more eternal understanding of, of the wrath of God. It's, it's more, uh, more than just death. It's the wrath of God. And that's the way Jesus is using the word perish here. Not that we'll end up dying in some newsworthy tragedy, right? That's not the, the fear that he, he, he's talking about here. But, but worse, rather, right? That the wrath of God will be upon us because of our sin. And so there's a warning there. You know, we're, we're all so prone, if we're honest, to look at other people's sin and, and feel pretty good about ourselves. Years ago, I think I've shared this before, but years ago, I, I had a conversation with my mom. My mom's not a Christian. She's not a believer. Um, and we have this conversation. But in this conversation, she, she insisted that uh, guys like Hitler and guys like O.J. Simpson, uh, those guys were sinners, terrible sinners, right? And, and as a result, though, she must be a good person uh, because she's not like O.J. Simpson and she's not like Hitler. These are her words, uh, right? So, so it's this idea of, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. Are you, Mom, right? Be, be, because you've not, you know, been accused of murdering your spouse or systematically killed 11 million Jewish people? That's kind of the criteria. And, and there's this aspect of, of knowing this. To actually know your sin is, is spiritually concern, or discerned. It's a, a work of the Holy Spirit in your life uh, that you can just admit that you're a sinner. On some level, we, we all do what the crowds are doing here, though. We, we feel good about ourselves because my sin's not as heinous as that person's sin. I'm doing well. This is where it is important to know that, that any sin at all is a violation against God's holy and perfect law. Right? So it doesn't matter if your sin is less than the person next to you. You might be right in that assessment, but it doesn't change the fact that you're guilty of that sin and you need to repent. The other point Jesus is making in both of these instances that that might be the bigger significance here um, is that these people died unexpectedly and quickly. They did not have time to repent. They did not have the opportunity. It's a a warning to the crowds. It's a warning uh, to you and to me that our death might come immediately. It might come completely unexpected as well, right? It's uh, it says, well, this is where I quote Tim Durrett. It says, Tim Durrett and Monty Python both say, I don't know who I've heard say it most, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, right? It's just unexpected. And, and that's the warning of Jesus here. You don't know when it's going to happen. Thus, Jesus is pointing them to the necessity of repentance now, today. Is that a golf cap clap? Uh, Jesus is also pointing you to repent. Not, not someday, but now. That, that is the big aspect here. Don't, don't put this off. I've known too many people that have just thought, I'm going I'm, you know, to figure out answers to what I, you know, who is God and what does he say about me and things someday. Don't, don't put it off. Now, repentance begins with being honest enough in our hearts to admit, I am a sinner. 
I am guilty of doubts and pride and lust and bitterness and self-righteousness and greed and gossip and everything else you might throw into that list because God throws it into that list in his word. And and repentance involves knowing that, that God doesn't owe me anything except divine judgment for my sin. That's all he actually owes me. Repentance involves a true sense of our sin as we read, you know, read in our affirmation of faith today, right? Repentance includes a contriteness as, as we said in the passing of the peace today. And, and, and just pause for a second. I don't know if you know this. My wife pointed this out to me one time. We actually build the liturgy around whatever the passage is that week. You'll see themes in it through the affirmation of faith and other things, songs, things of that nature. Uh, I'd encourage you sometime... But we miss it because usually the preaching is so far late in the service. Uh, at some point, take that bulletin home and read through it and see if you don't start to see those themes in a, a new way that you might have missed. So anyway, in our passing of the piece today, there was from Psalm 51, and it wasn't a mistake. It was intentional, right, where he says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And you see, contriteness is, is not sorrow for getting caught, but sorrow because it's wrong in the eyes of God. Paul in in 2 Corinthians 7.10 explains this difference between godly grief and and worldly grief, right? You might think of that even in terms of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Uh, Listen to this. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, right? Nothing actually comes from worldly grief. Grief. You remain right where you were. You, you, you probably experience worldly grief in some capacity, right? You, you have regret for something, regret for getting caught speeding, but, but not really regret for speeding, or regret because you got caught in a lie, but not really regret lying. You see, worldly grief is, is one of those things, um, well, it, it's one of those things that, I, I'm an Astro fan, you probably figured that out, right? Because I tell you that way too often. Um, but it's one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing, and I'm kind of intrigued by seeing the world respond to their, their cheating in a really major way. Uh, and the accusation I keep hearing is, is they're not really sorry. They're not really contrite. They, they, they're just sorry they got caught. And, and they come and say, you know, they, they haven't expressed enough contriteness for, for cheating. And, and it's true. Their apology, the public apology was written by a PR firm that's read off, which is not genuine. It's not contriteness. And you know, so this accusation is they're not really sorrowful. And I'm intrigued because even the unbelieving world looks at that and is like, no, that doesn't mean anything. That can't be real. Right? And, and that's just in a weird, it's weird to see the world recognize something like this. How, what genuine versus ingenuine, what real contriteness looks like. Uh, anyway, so, uh, you, you, you know, listen to anyone, anyone in the world rather can have worldly grief. Anyone. But, but true Godly repentance can only occur when the Holy Spirit is within a man or a woman and God grants genuine repentance, you know, repentance that leads to life. Repentance is not the cause of regeneration. Repentance is the fruit of regeneration that God is doing a work in us. And true repentance will genuinely seek to leave behind sin. Doesn't mean you're going to do it perfect. But to genuinely fight and leave behind sin so you can follow the Lord. And so uh, Jesus' call to repentance here is, is more than just stop sinning like we tend to think of it, right? This is, this is a call to repent and to come to Jesus because he's more satisfying than your sin. Because he offers forgiveness, which deep down is, is what you need and what you want. And so listen, Jesus in our passage is very clear that the only alternative to repentance is what? What is it? 
perishing. And for true repentance, or for true repentance, or rather the evidence of true faith is, is the evidence of true faith. Sorry. True repentance is the evidence of true faith which unites us to Christ, which secures the forgiveness of our sin, which is accomplished by Christ's death on the cross. Now, Philip Ryken does a great job explaining. There's three actual parts to repentance. Uh, Listen to this. He says, Confession is the intellectual aspect of repentance. We know in our minds that we have sinned. Contrition, uh, Contrition is the emotional aspect of repentance. We feel in our hearts that we have sinned. And change is the volitional aspect of repentance. We resolve in our wills that we will go and sin no more. And all three of these aspects uh, are part of what genuine biblical repentance is. And Christians, I, I, I know there's a t- temptation sometimes when we talk about repentance in, in this way to just think, I've, I've done that. That's something in my past. Don't, don't think of repentance as only something in your past, a, a one-time event, one moment of confession, repentance, and faith in Jesus because you know that you still sin. We, we have freedom from sin, and we hear that, and we know that. That's a biblical truth, and, and that means we have freedom from sin's enslaving power over our lives, over us, but we do not have freedom from its presence. Sin is everywhere in the world still today, and, and you and I contribute to that sin in the world as well. But, but in Christ, we are free from enslavement to sin. And that is hugely significant because when, when you're tempted to sin, you can obey God. That, that's a work of the Spirit in you. Not everyone can do that be, be because you're not a slave to sin and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and still, our, our life is one of repentance, of ongoing repentance and as his redeemed children, we, we, we confess and we repent knowing, and, and this is what's so significant, when you and I go to God and we repent, we, we know he's going to forgive us. You, you ever sinned against someone and you're like, I don't know if they're going to forgive me. It's, it's this terrifying, afraid to even talk to them because they may not. Well, one of the things the gospel frees up and shows us so beautifully is God is going to forgive you. And so when you go to him in repentance, you can let go of that and the weight is lifted off you because you know he will forgive you. And and, and so let's not stop repenting of our specific sins. Um, Continue until we die or the Lord repents for or returns because repentance is the road that leads to life. And so then Jesus ends with this, this public discourse with the crowds by, by telling a parable. He's been on a, a roll with lots and lots of parables lately, uh, which is just an earthly story that has a, a spiritual or heavenly meaning. Uh, follow along there in verse 6 as we pick up again. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. But should it, uh, why, should it, uh, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. It's a vineyard, not an orchard. You're kind of surprised there's a fig tree there. But uh, vineyards had fantastic soil, and so it provides every advantage to this tree if it's planted in the vineyard, right? For three years, right? That's plenty of time for the fig tree to have matured and to be, be fruitful. But this tree has no fruit upon it. 
And the owner of the vineyard comes in and is ready to cut it down, right? He's giving up on it in that sense. Uh, Jesus is talking about Israel. I think we want to jump right to the application, but you, you kind of need to know he's talking about Israel. The, the fig tree is an Old Testament image uh, of Israel. And the idea is they've been planted in good soil. They have had every advantage to bear fruit, to repent, to trust in Jesus, to know the Messiah as he's actually standing before them in the sense of this crowd. I mean, consider their advantages. They, they have the scriptures. They, they have the promise of the covenant. They have teachers. They've known the Messiah is coming. They, they know what to look for. And still, many of the Israelites are standing before Jesus like this barren tree. And so the owner of the vineyard is, is God the Father, who is you know, prepared to cut down the, this fruitless, the fruitless Israelites like, like many that are in the crowd before him. And the vine dresser then represents Jesus, who, who intercedes for the tree, for Israel. He, he doesn't deny that the tree is indeed fruitless. He doesn't deny that it deserves to be cut down, but he does ask that there be more time. Time to care for the tree in the hope that it will produce fruit still. Now, the vine dresser concedes that if extra time and, and, and care don't actually work, then indeed, yeah, let's cut this tree down. It is the, the same thing that we saw last week. They're saying there is this limited time to repent lest they perish. Um, the time for repentance and faith is limited for all of us. It's limited to our life. The same application exists for us today. He's not necessarily talking about us, but the application here is for us. If you look at churches and, and Christians today, we, we in the West in particular are, are planted in a vineyard. We, we have such a huge advantage here. We, we have Bibles that are in easy-to-read translations and are cheaply available to us. We have churches to worship in and to learn in. We have more free time than any generation in the history of the world. Don't believe me. Netflix exists. That's my argument. It couldn't exist if we didn't. We, we have access to so much quality teaching and, and books and all other means of, of access. And yet we bear so little fruit. We should be growing in godliness. We should be seeing progress in our struggle against sin. We should be doing things in the service of God during our, our weeks. We should be faithful in evangelism and and live hopeful lives that find real rest in the gospel. And, and maybe you are. I, I won't presume to know, but, but you know. What, what do you think when you think on your own life? Is your, is your life fruitful? Do you see the fruit of repentance, of, of faith, of you know, love for God and love for your neighbors? Is there the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, right? The, the Spirit that in Galatians 5.22, or Galatians 5.22 says is working in us to, to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and, and gentleness and self-control. Or control all if you've seen the song. The parable here, right, might, might make you sad then as you realize how little fruit there is in the life of the church in America today, or even in your own life. It, it might make you wonder, is there, is there something wrong with my love for God? And that wondering, it can be a good thing. The wondering turns to, to the Lord. Now this parable also tells us how merciful and patient God is with us. I know we don't typically think about it when we wake up. We wake up and think of all the things we need to do. But that the sun came up today 
and your life continued for another day is a huge mercy of the Lord to every single one of us. It is. Michael Wilcox says, we're all sinners, all in need of repentance, all deserving of punishment, and all preserved from the wrath of God, at least until Judgment Day, purely by His mercy. This is a covenantal mercy. The, the mercy is based upon the coming of Jesus. Matthew Henry, long ago, uh, pointed out here that had it not been for Christ's intercession, the whole world would have been cut down. And this is true from the beginning. You think about Adam and Eve, right? One of the questions, why, why didn't he just cut them down immediately after the first sin? And we know that right there in, in Genesis 3.15 is the promise of God to, to send a Messiah to actually redeem them. That, that's why. That's the mercy of God. This is still true today. The, the mercy of God is why sinners who haven't trusted in Jesus aren't, aren't immediately punished for their sin. There's still time. Our merciful God is, is patient and long-suffering. And so let me summarize this whole passage for you if I can. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus knows we're going to hear stories of tragic deaths. We do all the time. Turn on your news. Go anywhere where you see a TV. You're going to see these things in the news. And, and Jesus wants these stories to, to lead us to think about our own mortality and then to move towards the joy of repentance. And so the next time that you, you hear news of people dying in some tragic event, you know, remember these nine verses in Luke 13 and, and never think maybe they deserve what happened, but, but maybe rather think, I deserve worse than that. And then be grateful for the opportunity we have to repent to the Lord, to our Lord who is gracious and merciful and patient, but whose patience will eventually come to an end. Now, I want to close with the, the words of 2 Peter 3.9. Here the Apostle Peter is, is reflecting on this question. Why, why has Jesus not returned yet, his second coming? You probably thought about that yourself. It, it seems like forever. It should have happened a long time ago. Why has he not come quicker? And, and he says, here's the response uh, from 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. Father, if we have repented and and trusted in Jesus, please bring about the fruit of such repentance as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Please fill our hearts with gratitude and a continued life of repentance. If we have not repented of our sinful ways, if we have not come to Jesus for rest, would you awaken in us the need to do so? And would you redeem us, Lord, lest we perish unexpectedly and also eternally? In the name of Jesus, our merciful Savior, we pray. Amen.